0: Okay, so Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're going to have the Ten Commandments given to us again there in verses 1 through 22. Um, We we covered this in in quite some detail. Um, If I remember correctly, we especially spent some time just talking about the relationships believer, Uh, yeah, the the, the believer's relationship to the uh, old covenant. Um, We are under the new covenant. And so if that is a topic that you've yet to explore, I would encourage you to go back to Exodus uh, 20. But we, um, we are not under the Old Covenant. That is something that Hebrews makes very clear that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so we walk and we find our doctrine and practice in the New Testament. However, there is a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament that tells us about what was to come. There is also prophecy. So many biblical principles. So while there might not be a specific passage um, that we will walk out like, um, you know, we're going to talk about, you could talk about (laughs) any number of the dietary laws um, or how to wash things. They may not be something we have are under the law to walk out today, but there's, there's a principle to be gleaned from that. Um, And that is we're to be holy in in all things. We're to be clean before the Lord. And so this would be a principle that could carry over into the New Testament without having to carry over the specifics of washing. So we always are trying to drill down into those principles of the word of God. Um, And if you've been journeying along in um, Hebrews, we've hit this many, many times. But in chapter five, we have the Ten Commandments given to us. And we read in verse one: And Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them to be careful to observe them. And this is a truth that is good for the New Testament as well. We should be careful to observe though the commandments of the Lord and what he has to say to us. Um, because we're going to see this in a couple of different places, but there are so many places where people are happy to push along or move along without the commandments of the Lord, with how he's told us to live. And there's plenty in the New Testament that tells us about that. Now, we're going to go through these uh, Ten Commandments and... There, there's one commandment that's not going to be repeated in the New Testament, and that is that we should keep the Sabbath day holy, but the other nine are repeated. So as we go through these Ten Commandments, there's, there's nine things the Lord wants us to be careful to observe. So Paul um, is going to talk about in verses 12 through 15 uh, the commandment to uh, keep the Sabbath day. Um, that's commandment number four. That's not something that is repeated um, in uh, in the New Testament. It is we are exhorted to gather together. We are told not to forsake the gathering together of believers hebrews ten twenty four and twenty five. We talked about that not so long ago. but uh, let me let me give you just a little bit of information about the when the conversation comes up about um, keeping the Sabbath, or what day we should keep uh, worship in the New Testament so Colossians 2 16 and 17 says let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or sabbaths so not just the weekly sabbath but the other sabbaths that would be found in their year, their calendar don't anybody judge you in these things He says, these are which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance of Christ. So they were all a shadow of what would come in Christ. Well, how is the Sabbath a shadow of Christ? Because the Sabbath day was a day of rest. And in Christ, we find our rest. We cease striving. We don't have to uh, try and figure out life anymore. We find rest in Jesus Christ. Um, Paul also in Romans chapter 14 says, Uh, enters into a conversation about what day should be esteemed. In chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, he says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord. So, Um, you can see if there was ever a time where he would have drilled down and say, now here is the day, it's the Sabbath, it is the the day that Israel walked in and rested, it would have been right here. But he does not pick that conversation up. And as a matter of fact, there's plenty of evidence to show that even in the early church, they were already beginning to meet on Sunday. Um, But uh, what do any of you care? You're all here on Wednesday night. So uh, what's the debate? I, have, I find this interesting that whenever you have a debate, if anybody's ever going to bust your chops for going to church, they're never going to be bothered that you went on Wednesday night. They're never going to be bothered by that. They're never going to be bothered that you, if you're in college, you went to the Monday night edge group, or if you're, you know, the men you, you, you know, when on Saturday, they probably will applaud you for that. If you, you know, the ladies meeting on Thursday, there's no bother. You, you went to home fellowship on Tuesday night, that's fine. No, they're not bothered about any, but they get bothered when, the, when people show up on Sunday morning. The Sabbatarians will. The, those that believe you got to meet on Saturday. And it's just, it, this is not it. As a matter of fact, you're hard pressed to find a verse in the Old Testament that says meet on Saturday and have a Bible study. Again, you guys already said it, Saturday, the Sabbath, was a day of Bible study or a day of what? Rest. Rest. So as I like to say, kind of tongue in cheek, but I think it gets the point across, if you lay around on Saturday late in the day in your pajamas, you're keeping the Sabbath, okay? So just, but you know, people get caught up on what day you go to. Well, uh, there you are, Romans chapter 14, five and six, don't. Esteem, you know, everybody's going to esteem a different day. Don't let anybody judge you, Colossians chapter 2. But Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, whatever the body of believers you are a part of, when they gather, be there. <laughs> that's the point, is that we should make certain that we're coming together. So anyway, that, that's a, an important point. But there are these other commandments, right? Um, in verse 1, you shall have no other gods before me. There's only one God to worship. And it's the, it's, the, it's the God who has created this universe, who sent the second person of the Trinity, his son, to die on the cross and, um, and his spirit to indwell you. This is the God we worship, this triune God. And so there should be no other gods. Um, verse 2, idolatry is forbidden. Um, verse 3, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Um, We already talked in verses 12 through 15 about the Sabbath, honor your father and your mother. Um, Verse uh, 17, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or anything else that he has. So these are the commandments and each and every one of those is repeated in the New Testament except the one that we just talked about, verses 12 through 15, and that is the day um, of rest. That was a specific um, sign of the covenant that God had made between Israel was that Sabbath day rest. It's a sign there. So um, something important for us to, I think, to understand, but the, the word that we read first in verse one is that you should be careful to observe them. So, if you're living in adultery, you need to repent. if you're stealing from your company, you need to stop if you are if you're murdering somebody, please stop um, you know don't 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 follow that out um, if you're lying about somebody and you're 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 portraying somebody to be one way and it's not true you need to stop this is this is you know commandment number nine and and covetousness interesting paul said that. When he thought about keeping the, the law, that he was blameless until he came to number 10. Number 10 got him, covetousness. He said, I, I, I did well on all the other nine, but number 10, that one broke me. Because this is something that really is deep within the heart, isn't it? And it's easy to desire what somebody else has. And he says, yeah, it's that materialistic uh, sin that, that got me and brought me down. As you, as you move on in verses 23 through 27, the people respond to the giving of the law with reverence and a commitment to obey it. So let's pick it up there. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, surely... The Lord, Yahweh, our God, has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Wow, wow, wow. If there was ever a day in the Old Testament that you'd want to be around, it would have been that day. To hear the voice of God speaking from the thick cloud, from the mountain, from the thunderings, from the lightning, and they are like, wow, we made it. We're still alive. This was a, a, this was a terrifying experience for them. And it was so terrifying that they're going to say, from now on, although we lived and it was really neat, we don't ever want to do that again. That, that's scary. From now on, you go talk to God and let God tell you whatever he wants to tell you. And when you come down, verse 27, we'll do everything. Uh, this was an, a holy and an awesome scene that they experienced. Um, when we get to heaven, we'll be fully equipped for the experience of seeing the glory of God and hearing the voice of the Lord. And, and it is going to be breathtaking. I don't know. I don't know how long you're, you know after we're there. Um, I, you know, if it's a rapture, you know, the first seven years, I mean, I, I think it's just going to be one long worship service, just being amazed at um, the presence of the Lord. But they, they commit uh, to uh, being completely obe- obedient. And then in verses 28 through 23, then the Lord heard the voice of your word. So they heard the Lord's voice and then the Lord heard their voice. Verse 28, chapter 5 of your words. And when you spoke to me, the Lord said to me, I've heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they've spoken. So they're going to be obedient. This is exactly right. And I love the expression and the heart of the Lord for obedience. How does God feel about obedience? Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. The heart of God towards you and towards me and all his followers as oh, I just, I hope that they obey me all the days of their life. The number one prayer I prayed for my kids when they were growing up, most repeated prayer, And the most repeated prayer I pray for my grandchildren is, Lord, may my children, my grandchildren, may they follow you all the days of their life. I prayed that, I think, every day. Um, And I'm still praying it. And and that's what you hear in the heart of God. Oh, that they would be connected and obey me. This is what I want. And if they do that, it's going to go well for them. It's going to be a blessing for them and for their children so the Lord expresses his approval of Israel and desire that they would be completely obedient. We'll close there at verse 33. It says, we'll close for chapter five. <laughs> you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. How many of the ways? All. Yeah, there's so much we, times, I, I'm probably going to allude to this, but we don't live in a day where everybody thinks that the commands of God are still on the table. And I'm not talking about the old covenant, new covenant stuff, just the New Testament. And people are thinking this. Like, no, I don't think all the commandments that were there, um, you know, when the, when the New Testament was written, that they're all still a, applicable and appropriate. They are. They are. Th- this is something that God desires. Whatever he's commanded us to do is that we would do it. Why? that you may live. That's a good thing. That it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. The Lord, and they're not, they're on their way into the land. I guess I should have opened up with a bit of introduction for those of you who weren't here last week. Deuteronomy is speaking to the generation, to the young generation that has wandered through the wilderness. um, And young, I mean, it's been 40 years and everybody 20 and over died. So They could have been like 59, would have been around the the oldest, um, which I think is not that old anymore, but um, yeah, a few others feel that way too. So, but, but he's saying, let me give you the law again. You got it once at the very beginning. Let me give it to you again. It's been 40 years and he's in, and they're just about to come in the promised land, but you can hear the hint even in chapter five, verse 33, you're not going to be there long. I'm going to have to take you out of that land. That'll come up over and over again. Chapter six, we're gonna get the greatest commandment um, in scripture. Now this is a commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you And your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so uh, the importance of fearing and obeying the Lord and and remaining in the land is emphasized. Verse 4. And as we come into this section, this is, a, uh, this is considered to be the most important portion of Scripture. And you, you'll see why. Um, it's called the Shema, which comes from the very first word you're going to see in verse 4. Shema is the Hebrew word um, for the English word here. And so it's hear this. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, our God, Elohim, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So we'll stop right there. To this very day, uh, devout Jews will repeat this every single morning. And when Jesus was asked... What is the most, and most important commandment? And I'll read it to you. It's, it's from Hebrew, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through, f- uh, tw- chapter 22, verses 35 through 40. I um, mean, he's being tested. This is one of them. A lawyer asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But I'll give you a bonus. The second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So, if the Ten Commandments is a summary of the principles of how they should live, and all the details of the Old Covenant, then the Shema here in uh, verses four and five is a summary of the Ten Commandments. So, this is like this is breaking it down to the most. basic important principle of scripture and that is that we should love the lord our god with all of our heart soul mind and strength this is something the lord desires of us today is that we would be just as committed to the lord with every aspect now we 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 sang that that last song um uh, alabaster heart. We talked about all my love, all my heart, all my all, all that I have. Lord, I love you. I'm going to follow you. And this is exactly what the Lord wants for us to do, is to be living like this. Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The, the, the Lord says that, you know, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. This is a repeated theme in scripture, is that of loving the Lord. He wants us to love him. He wants us to be in this relationship with him. But one of the truths that comes out here in verse 4 so clearly is there is one God. Uh, Let me read to you. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Jack Deere is uh, authoring the Deuteronomy section of that commentary. And he says this. This verse means that the Lord, Yahweh, is totally unique. He alone is God. The Israelites could therefore have a sense, listen to this, I like this, have a sense of security that was totally impossible for their polytheistic neighbors. Why? The gods of the ancient Near East rarely were thought of as acting in harmony. Each god was unpredictable. And morally capricious. So a pagan worshiper could never be sure that his loyalty to one God would serve to protect him from the capricious wrath of another. And so the polytheistic worshiper, you know, everybody that existed outside of Judaism, um, could never rest. Because there's always a possibility that a God could be mad at them. But what is said here is that there's one God. And you love him with all that you have. And so there's a rest that would come to their, to their minds. This is the, the case that um, that commentator is making. And, and I agree, we can rest in the Lord because we know who he is. We know that he doesn't change. We know that he is not capricious. He's not going to have one attitude one day and another attitude the other day. Like us. Isn't it amazing how you can just, you can wake up and you know like, oh man, I'm going to be trouble today. I can just feel it. I mean, you don't say it out loud, but I mean, in your mind, you're thinking, I'm going to be troubled. I, I can feel it right now. It's good to give your spouse a warning. Hey, pray for me. I don't know what's going on. But I'm angry. You know, it's just I don't know what's happening. And so, and and Rebecca will, we don't say that very often, just in case you're taking notes there. But we do say that to each other. It's like, I don't know. I've just got an attitude right now. Pray for me. Um, Keep your distance for a minute or two. But God's not like that. How God has revealed himself is how God is. Be at peace. Be at peace. He's not going to change things for you. Now, one thing, and we're going to move on um, after this, it says, here is with the Lord, Yahweh, singular Yahweh, our God Elohim, which is uh, uh, for God, was a plural form, the Lord is one. Now, I'm not going to say here that this is a a slam dunk teaching on the Trinity, because this has not been fully revealed yet, but it certainly supports the teaching of the Trinity. Yahweh is Is in the plural form, translated in your scripture as all capitals Lord. And then we have God, which is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is plural. And then you come to this word one. And one of the ways, one of the ways in which the word one can be used here is that of compound unity. So the context is going to help to determine if this is the way. Well, this is a great place where that compound unity idea will come in. And so we see that even here, the early chapters, we see this idea of of the teaching of the Trinity being laid down. But you know what? We already got it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, Let us make man in our image. So, Although it's teaching a monotheistic uh, uh, belief in worshiping God, which we completely hold to, you also see that the teaching of the Trinity is it's already being laid down, the groundwork to have such a thought. But for us, as we pick this up, the important thing is the greatest commandment. Love your God. Put everything you have into this pursuit of loving God. And you know what? It's going to go well with you. It's going to go well. You're going to be blessed. In verses 6 through 9, we have the commandments, um, uh, you know, um, to obey. And the idea is that you would pass them on to your children. Every time we do a baby dedication, we always read these. Um, Verse 6, and these words, which I command you today shall be in your heart. You want your kids to grow up and walk in the ways of the Lord. The greatest advantage they can have in that is you having the word of God in your heart your heart. If you're passionate for Jesus, it'll, it'll give them the easiest road to walk on to be passionate for Jesus as well. Uh, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children, not every now and then, not when it's convenient. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So if you're sitting down, talk about the, the commandments, the ways of the Lord. Uh, if you're walking down the street, if you're driving down the road, turn the radio off, Turn the phones off and talk about the Lord. It's a commandment here. Um, When you lie down, when you're tucking them in a bed, talk to them about the Lord. When they get up in the morning, talk to them about the Lord. Um, Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. This is a metaphor. It's not something that was meant to be literally done, although this is what they do. And I really don't have a problem with that if that's what they want to do. But the important part is that it's in our mind. It's, it's on our hands. What are our hands going to do? They sh- our mind and our thoughts and our hands should be governed by the word of God. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, let it be a reminder every time you're going in and out of the house, this is a house that obeys and follows the Lord. And so this is important, right? Um, and what, what I love about this is um, there's no compartmentalizing of their faith. What do I mean by that? Well, it isn't just when you sit down and have the devotion for 20 crazy minutes. And you're like, crazy minutes? Yeah, if you've ever had to try to have a devotion with multiple kids at different ages, it's crazy, okay? It does not feel holy at all, okay? Every now and then, you feel like, wow, that was awesome. It'll come when they get later, all right? You're laying the groundwork. But often it's like, you know, yeah, I don't need to go into it. You know what I'm talking about. But the idea here is that it's not just like here. It's in my heart, but it's as we're walking down the road. It's when we're lying down. It's when we're getting up. It's when whatever we're doing, it's all about the word of God. And so it should just be, you know, infiltrating our life. In verses uh, 10 through 19, he warns them um, about forgetting Um, so he he doesn't want them to forget (laughs) when they're in the promised land. um, So pick up a little bit of that. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant when you have eaten and are full. Then beware lest you forget. The Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You should make commitments to follow the Lord. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him. In Massah, you, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. In the days of Judges, what's the repeated line? And every man did what? Exactly, what was right in his own eyes. But what we read here is that we are to do what is right in God's eyes. It's not, listen love you, but it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is what does God think and what does God say? And we yield to that and we bring our feelings and our thoughts and we make them bow. You have to make them bow before the Lord and his wisdom and his truth. And he says, now when you get in the land and you're blessed, don't let this be an occasion for turning from me because Yeah, it's not going to go well. Verse 19, he says that, well, verse 18, and you should do what is right and good inside the Lord, that it may be well with you, and you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. And so your son's going to ask you, what is the meaning of all of these commandments that we're, we're keeping? And he says, this is going to be an opportunity for you to teach a message. You're going to be able to tell your kids, oh, We keep this commandments because the God we serve and worship did a miracle and he delivered our forefathers out of the bondage of Egypt. And so this God who loves us so much and delivered us and cared for us for 40 years and gave us this nation, he has asked us to obey. How can we do anything other than obey to this kind, loving, benevolent God that we worship and serve? And so this is teaching by example. Chapter 7. In the opening verses of chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, two instructions to follow in the land of promise. Um, so let's read those. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, and he tells you, he gives these seven nations right there, um, and when the Lord your God delivers you them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your son. Why? Why? Is this kind of like some kind of racist attitude? Well, why don't you read the next verse? For they will turn your sons away from following me. This isn't about ethnicity. This is about worship. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters they're going to turn your heart their hearts away. Um, and then the Lord's anger will be aroused against you, verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them, you shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So it prohibited intermarriage with the descendants of the land. And it was a commandment to destroy the altars and the carved images. And both of these were to preserve their devotion in worship to the Lord. The Lord didn't want their hearts being turned away. We, the church, the bride, have been called to have this same kind of devotion. Paul says that bad company corrupts good morals. And so, but actually, that's not what it says. The first lines of that verse is what? Do not be deceived. This is what you can find. Anytime in scripture you see the phrase, do not be deceived or don't be ignorant of, you can be certain that there is deception and ignorance around that truth that follows. It's like the Lord's underlining it for us. And so this is, this is it. You, you know, don't allow them to turn your hearts away. In verses 6 through 11, Um, He tells Israel that they are loved, that they are chosen, and they are to be this holy people. Now, this favor that is being shown to them is not based on their ethnicity. It's not based upon their righteousness. It's based on the fact that they were a small group of people. Actually, he's going to go on and say, you're a stiff-necked group of people. But the Lord showed kindness to that group of people. And, um, and fortunately for us, the Lord is still showing that same kind of love in election and calling people unto himself. You know, you know, we fight over this idea of election and predestination, which is a shame. Because you know what we should do with the teaching of election and, de- and, and predestination? We should fall flat on our faces and say, you've got to be kidding me. You asked me to be on team Jesus? You've asked me to be with you for the rest? And, and, and you go down the road and say, well, what about man's Mansfield? After you've worshiped for a while, then pick that topic up. But there ought to be awe and wonder around this that the, that the Lord has, has chosen and called. Um, he, he chose a nation, but he's choosing individuals. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you've been chosen. I mean, if the psalmist can say, what is man that you're mindful of him? How much more the believer today say, I can't believe that before the foundation of the world, you were thinking about me and you called me to be a part of what you're doing. And if you feel like, I don't know, I can fully understand it. Yeah, it sounds like we're about to worship now, right? That, that sh- should be exactly how we feel. Now, in verses 10 and 11, um, Being chosen, we see, doesn't exempt from um, holiness, or in chapter seven, so let me read those two verses for you. it says, um, and he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. he will not be slack with him who hates him, he will repay him to his face, therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today. To observe them. So, although they were called and elected and they were loved, they were never given the freedom to go live however they wanted to. And Paul brings this point up in the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. The thought of, well, I'm a Jew, therefore I can go live however I want to. And the equivalent today um, in the church is, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I can go live how I want to. Well, this is what Paul says. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So that would be the outward part, right? Is the, the marking of their body, the cutting off of the skin. But well, who is a Jew? But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. A, a Jew is one that follows the Lord and obeys. A Christian is one that follows and obeys the Lord. And we are following and obeying the same stuff. And that is Jesus. Do you love or hate your God? <laughs> he says, if you love me, It's going to go well with you. If you hate me, well, I'm going to destroy you. This is strong, strong language. But again, as we mentioned a couple of times already, there are those who would say, no, you can really, you can actually, you can live how you want to. You can go ahead and live how you want to. If God chose you, then you live how you want to. It doesn't matter. Um, Because if He chose you, He's not going to get rid of you. That is what false prophets say. I I don't know how to say it any stronger. Those who say that are false prophets and should be completely rejected and turned off from ever having another word into your life. Look at Jude. Turn to Revelation chapter one and go back a page. Jude chapter one, verse four. It says, for certain men have crept in unannounced who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God, you've been chosen by the Lord. Did we earn it? No, it's the grace of God. Into lewdness, into unbridled lust, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, men have crept in. So there are what Judas is saying, people have made it into the church by stealth and they've waited for the ideal moment and time to begin to sell their false prophecy of unbridled lust that says you can go and live however you want to because it's all by the grace of God. That is a, I mean, I don't know if we can have a, a stronger warning. Those that want to come and say, live how you want, You you don't have a single place in scripture where it ever says that. So strong words there in verses 10 and 11 to obey the Lord, to be a lover or a hater of God. There are consequences and blessings for both. Verses 12 through 16, God's going to bless their land um, with children. He's going to make them fruitful fields. They're going to have vines and flocks. He's going to bless them with good health if they will obey um, got to pick up the pace here just a bit. Verses 17 through 26. God's going to fight for Israel and he's going to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Now I, I just encourage while I'm talking, or just kind of glance over. It's, it's similar to what we've already read, that they're going to be driven out of the land, that these people are going to be judged, the inhabitants, the Uh, Those seven nations that we mentioned, they're all going to be driven out by the Lord. He's going to chase them out with hornets and and all the rest. Um, And they're going to be driven out um, in verse 22, little by little, um, so that the beasts don't take over the field. Um, But let's just pick up at verse 24. And he will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing." I mean, this is some strong language. But this is a point that the enemies of Scripture love to seize upon and say, see, how could you worship and follow a God that hates people that aren't Jews? Which is to totally miss what we just read. That is not the case. Let's just do a little bit of review. In Genesis, Cain was judged for the murder of his brother Abel. The ancient world say they were destroyed by a worldwide flood because of their evil. God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their evil. The Lord is bringing judgment on the Canaanites during the conquest by Israel because of their evil wickedness. Israel is going to be exiled from the land repeatedly because of their wickedness. And one day, as the Lord has told us and others, God is going to judge this world because of evil. Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you you catch the point? God is an equal opportunity judger. He judges evil. He doesn't lock on a people because of their ethnicity. But if that group of people and that culture, if we can think of it more in terms of culture than ethnicity, I think it will help us. Because there are times when the Lord says, strike them all. And there's other times when he says, I'm going to drive them out. And as they were driven out, many of them would end up in other lands and in other cultures where their wicked culture could not be brought in and, um, yeah, in fact, the human race. Let me read to you. It says, The Sin of the Amorites. So, This is one of the groups. It's representative of the sin that's in the land that caused God to tell them to drive them out in the way that they did, okay? So the sin of the Ammonites increased during the centuries of Israel's sojourn in Egypt, about 400. In Horeb, or Sinai Covenant, God assured the Israelites that the inhabitants of Canaan would be dislodged and destroyed. Their sinfulness is described in Leviticus 18, 24-30. Archaeological artifacts and epic literature from the Syrian coast of Ras Shamra indicate that the Canaanites were guilty of child sacrifice, idolatry, sacred prostitution and divination and their polytheistic patterns of worship they had become like a cancer within the human race. So if you are for child sacrifice then I guess you can argue for this. But God gave this group of people 400 years to repent. 400 years. That's longer than we've been a country. He gave them century after century to get it right. And then when their wickedness and their culture was so thoroughly rancid and unable to be redeemed, then God said, I'm judging that and I'm displacing them. To make this an ethnic issue is to miss the point because we've already read it a couple of times, what happens to the chosen people when they commit the same sins? What happens to them? They're judged. So this is not about ethnic uh, genocide. This is about cleaning up um, harm and murder of the innocent both, I mean, and you, I mean, you read Sodom and Gomorrah and you, about them, and you can you get a little flavor of what was going on at this time and how they oppressed people and they sought to rape people and they sought to murder people, and they, you know, it was it was a sinful, sexualized, idolatry-filled, murderous group of people, and so the Lord said, "I'm not having it," and so if you want to defend that, go ahead, but. I trust the character and the nature of God far more than I trust your evaluation. And so the Lord did this because they could not be um, spared. Let me read to you again another quote. It says, uh, Note that some inhabitants would be driven out, implying that they would continue to live and be allowed to settle elsewhere. Some would be destroyed. The biblical references show that the primary purpose was to drive the Canaanites out of the land, not to annihilate all the people. The implication seems to be that God's primary intention was to destroy the Canaanite culture or nation, not the life of every person in that society. The survivors would be forced to assimilate into other cultures and severely limit their ability to engage in such immoral practices and any kind of wholesale fashion ever again. Well, what happens if they repent? You mean like Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho? Oh, they become a part of the nation of Israel and actually end up in the lineage of Jesus. So there's, re- there's place for repentance. Or like Ruth, who was no prostitute, but she was not a, from, uh, you know, a descendant of, uh, of Abraham. But she was brought in and she too is in the lineage of Jesus. So is this hard to re- read? Yes, it is. But I think if you were there and you had just watched your child taken and sacrificed, or you heard the screams of babies, or you saw people being taken and made slaves to serve the temple, I think you might have a different feeling about it. We can read this in such a sanitized fashion, but you try to feel the human misery that's going on. And the Lord's like, I am not going to let this affect you, but I'm judging them. So, you, you will find a lot online, a lot of people will bring this up, but I, I hopefully that helps you to answer. The, this was, I, I like this, the intention was to destroy the Canaanite culture and the evil that existed. And I would just, if I was in the conversation, and if they're getting a little snarky, I'd say, well, if you want to defend, uh, you know, the killing of small children, I mean, go ahead. Because that, they're, they're trying to say that God has done something evil. Turn it back on them. Let them feel the consequences of charging God with evil and what he was doing. You know, none of us ever feel, um, well, when, when harm and injustice comes to us, we have a very different opinion about it when it hits our household than reading about it somewhere on the other side of the world. Well, they're, they're forbidden from engaging in idolatry. Idolatry, of course, is um, when a person would bow down before a carved image and that image was representing a belief system or, or some God was behind it. And so in bowing down to the idol, they were worshiping that God and they were, and this was rampant. There was all over the place, which still is in many places in the world today, um, It's been a while since I've been in Nepal or been in India, but it's all over. I mean, everything, everything is a god. The truck they drive is a god. The tree that they'll pass by is a god. And they worship these images. It's still going on. Um, In our area, though, in, in our part of the world, we don't see that so much. I'm not saying it's not there, but we don't see it so much. But that... To think then that, well, there's no idolatry would be a wrong conclusion. So in Acts 15, verses 27 through 29, idolatry is forbidden. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, idolatry is forbidden. Simple sentence, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, so you find that there. And so we most think of idolatry as bowing down to an image that represents a god. And yes, there are places like that, but that is not the only way idolatry takes place. Idolatry can be active any time a pursuit or a person or an idea has holds our loyalty and our veneration more than God. So if we if we value something or we're more passionate about something, then um, the Lord then that becomes idolatry and you may be thinking, well do you got a verse for that no I don't I've got two verses for that and the first one is in Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness what which is idolatry Oh, so that thing that happens in my heart and in my mind, covetousness, desiring somebody's property, somebody's wife, some, some, whatever they have, their job, their power, their influence, um, desiring that, having covetousness where it begins to, to um, control my thoughts and my, my desires, that is idolatry, which tells us it doesn't have to be an image that we bow down before for idolatry to happen. The other verse is in Philippians 3.19, and I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation. It says, They are headed for destruction. Their God, all right, so false worship. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. Wow. Now all of a sudden, idolatry gets quite broad. It's those passions that I have. It's bragging about shameful things. It's thinking about living only for this present hour. That's worshiping another God. That's what, that's what the idolaters do. So we all should be mindful and careful of those pursuits. Hey, all things are lawful. That's pretty broad, isn't it? I mean, I, I dare you to find a, a, a belief system that is broader than all things are lawful. But we're also warned that not all things are profitable. And so we need to pay attention to those things that we have freedom to follow and pursue, that they are there for us and we are not there for it. And if the Lord begins to take second seat or that begins to be what my passion is about. That's all I can think about. That's all I'm living for. That's all I can plan for. And the things of the kingdom of God and the worship of the Lord keeps getting pushed to the side until I can get this done. And it's not been an hour and it's not been a day and it's not been a week or a month or a year, but it's been 10. You've got, you're, you're an idolater and that needs to be repented of. The Lord demands to be first Will he be happy with a close second? No. No, he doesn't. You, we either walk in love and obedience to him, or we walk in sin and disobedience to him. So there's no middle ground of like, well, I just don't want to be an on fire Christian. No, then then you're a carnal Christian. You're in sin, and so that is something that I think while we read this over and over in the New Testament, don't give yourself a pass. We need to look, what is the thing that's consuming me? It can be a hobby, it can be a person, it can be a career, it could be any number of things. It could be money, and so we must be careful. It could be your retirement. We pick on the young people enough, so that's one for you older people. Your retirement can become an an idol in your life. I don't have to serve Jesus anymore, I'm retired. Oh, really? I don't think I've read a verse that sounds anything like that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God until you retire? No, I don't think it says that. You know, we're to finish the race. And we finish the race when we breathe our last. So be very mindful as you slow down in your career that you don't slow down in your service to the Lord. All right. So... Some some strong exhortations for us to consider. They're into chapter eight, and this is probably as far as we're going to get. I don't want to make you panicked here. Chapter eight, but chapter eight is a very cool uh, chapter. Um, let's read beginning at verse one. It says, "Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe." We read that a lot. Be careful about it, right? That you may live and multiply. And go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. So there's a little time stamp of when this was written, right? At the end of the the 40, uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Well, what happened? To humble you. And to test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know did did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Sound familiar? Remember we said last week that Deuteronomy was Jesus' favorite book. I mean, he quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other. And here's one place. So he's speaking to them Uh, about going in the land and being careful um, that they don't worship. But he says, remember what the lessons you've learned in the wilderness. Verse 4, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord God chastens you. Kind of going back to our study here this past Sunday in Hebrews. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you shall eat bread without scarcity, in which you shall lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given to you. Beware that you do not forget. And that's the problem. Idolatry begins when we lose a consciousness of God and his goodness in our life. When that's gone from us. This is why it's so important to give thanks. This is why it's so important to continually give praise to the Lord. Right, because it's reminding us of what He's done and what He has promised to do, that we don't go back into these things. It says that God humbled them to test them to see what was in their heart. Well, that's a very interesting thing to read about in omniscient, all-knowing God, that He wants to test so we can learn. He already knows, but the language is that in real time God will find out, and we will now become informed. I mean, God already knows this, but in real time, he's going to be known, and it'll be a point of lesson. We'll find out where we are. You know, when we sin, has anybody ever sinned before? Just curious. Has anybody ever been disappointed in their sin? Yeah. Maybe you've even been surprised by your sin. It's like, holy, I didn't know that was still in there. But you want to know who was, who's not surprised by your sin? The Lord. He, he knows what's in your heart. He knows what's there. And so when we go through a trial and we react poorly in that trial and the Lord sees your attitude or your speech or, you know, he's not like, "Ah, I had no idea, but we learn, we learn so that we can know what's there and what needs to be dealt with in our life. He made them dependent upon the Lord, which is interesting The great sin of the church of Laodicea was that they had become independent. You know, know, we have all kinds of money. We have all kinds of gold. We have need of nothing. He says, actually, you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. That's where you are. But the church of Laodicea had become a self-sufficient church. They didn't even need Jesus. That's why they kicked him outside. They didn't need him. And, And so... God took Israel through this 40 years of teaching them, you need me. (laughs) You need me for the clothes on your back. You need me for the water that you're going to drink. I make water come from a rock. You need me for your sandals that they don't wear out. You need me for your daily bread. I give you manna. Have you learned the lesson? You don't need fields and you don't need crops. You don't need springs and you don't need rivers. You don't need wells. What you need is me. That's what you need. And I'm sure we're all beginning to feel the conviction of the Spirit here a little bit because it's so easy for us to lock on the physical and esteem the physical. And we even say things like, well, I've got to go do something. And I think the Lord would say, actually, you don't. It's not to say that you shouldn't. But this idea that God can't show up without me, 40 years of teaching them. So when they got in the land, they could thank the Lord for the, the harvest of the wheat and the barley. But they could also say, but God could just give it to us from heaven if he wanted. So that made them dependent upon the Lord and not what they were putting in their stomachs or in their, their pocketbooks. And so he warns them there in verses 11 through 20. Um, When you get into the promised land, don't forget about obey me. Don't, look, look at verse 12. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when you have, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied. And all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, and a thirsty land where there is no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. So he's just saying, I've done all this. And then you say in your heart, verse 17, I did this. I did all this. I don't even need God anymore because I've got good fields. I've got lots of silver. I've got lots of gold. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you, gives you power and wealth, to our power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day, That you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So, again, you can just see the emphasis of this is not (laughs) simply about what's your family uh, lineage, this is about how you worship God. And so he gives them a strong warning. It would be great to think that um, they never forgot. But we know that's not the case because we know ourselves, right? Yeah, those Jews—I can't believe. No, think of yourself. These things were written for our learning and admonition, not for our mockery and condemnation. Now let's hear. How could they do that? No, it was written for us that we cannot make the same mistakes because we are capable of making the same mistakes. And if you have lost sight of the Lord as your supplier and the provider and the one with whom you should worship with all that you have, then hear the voice of the Lord and return to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are patient and that you are kind. We see that with the Amorites. 400 years of patience. We have problems with four minutes of patience. But Lord, it also reminds us how patient you are with us, and we thank you for that. But, Lord, we do not want to misread your patience for approval and continue another second in sin and disobedience in idolatry, having other passions, other pursuits, living for what this world has to offer, living and caring for things that we can acquire, positions we can gain power we can have, Lord, we want to live for your glory, for your kingdom and for your purpose we've read your word, we hear your word we hear your spirit speaking to our hearts even now so Lord, give us the grace give us the the ability to take this next step and to repent and to return to you completely or to at least Lord, for all of us to know the good God that you are that all that we have has come from you we don't need stuff. We don't need a good job. We don't need special skills. What we need is you. Lord, you, we, can, we can live without bread because you can supply it on your own. And so teach us that valuable lesson of dependence. In your name we pray. Amen.